Kanye West and his menagerie of living pets is a horrible name for an album. <laughs> Who would you run with Kanye West on the Kanye West presidential ticket in 2020? I'm Katie Rich, and Taylor Swift is the obvious answer, but also the right one, because she can clearly actually control Kanye, and I think they could unite the world with their powers combined. Hey, it's me, Dave with the Seven, Mike Myers, or Joe Biden. I'm Matt Patches, and I assume by 2020, Kanye West will have a clone of Kanye West, so I'm going to go with <laughs> Kanye West. And I'm David Ehrlich, and I'm not going with my ideal choice, but I think the most likely one is Kim Kardashian, because she's a genius, and I think... Kanye's going to fucking blow this shit wide open. Instead of having a first lady, he's just going to be first vice president, co-president. It's going to change the game. The You'll selfies see. will be unreal. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine then, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room, episode 85 for Tuesday, September 1st, 2015, the year of our Time Lord, Dr. Emmett Brown, the beginning of fall. There's so much happening out there. And not we the have beginning of fall. September. It's like back to school season. September is not the beginning of fall. September 21st is the beginning of Oh, come on. Are and it doesn't feel says, like fall. It's still Do you say summer doesn't out. start until June 21st either? Exactly, it's true. Oh, I have a spring birthday. I have so many freshly sharpened pencils that tell you that it is fall, damn it. And uh, we have a new review to share, which is not a sign of fall, but I'll take it. Uh, David, what's our it's, review all about? It's a sign of rise. We do, mm. from Rebecca Z UBZ, so maybe Rebecca Zubs says, the actual best. I genuinely don't remember what got me into this podcast back in the Opkino days. Same here. Maybe I started following <laughs> someone on Twitter. At the request of, like, film spotting or something, and then it led to my discovery of these guys? Whatever. All I know is that for the past couple of years, these kids have been my favorite hour or so of the week. Uh The opinion is going to be well-reasoned and argued no matter whose it is, and I'm going to respect it even if I wholeheartedly disagree. I really like you guys as people and want you to be happy and fulfilled in life, and this is about as weirdly emotional as I... This is about to get weirdly emotional, so I'm going to stop it now, but... These are smart, educated, entertaining critics you should pay attention to. Do that. I wanted it to get weirdly emotional. I know. I, yeah. I, all emotional reviews are more than welcome. Thanks, and, uh, Rebecca Zubbs. Yeah, uh, thank you. Rebecca yeah. I like that this You'll... didn't pinpoint our flaws, our individual flaws. <laughs> this spoke to the unit. This spoke to the, the show. That's the, true. the lifestyle that is listening to Fighting in the War Room. <laughs> you all made a choice out there. Congrats. Wow. <laughs> patting everyone on the back for the life choice of listening to us for years. Okay. Uh, keep, the, keep the reviews coming. We're coming into fall festival season. We're going to have fun stuff coming. So make sure people know uh, to be listening to us for when all that happens. Seriously. Yeah, smoke pot. Yeah, I love peace. Do it. But I don't give a fuck. Do it. I ain't no hippie. Yeah, smoke pot. Weed. Oh my god. <laughs> that was that whole thing was just so contained to yesterday that it just did not exist for me today until 
you were singing, singing that. Yeah, no, that's a good way to start our segment here, which is the Video Music Awards happened for MTV, full disclosure, people who pay me for another job that has nothing to do with the Video Music Awards. But uh, it was odd because this was the first Video Music Awards that passed that made me feel old. I am 31, and uh, this, this is the, the, the line got crossed somehow. I'm not sure exactly what it is. I think it's like it's hit um, a balance in between uh, selling nonsense and just being this huge performance uh, spot for a whole bunch of uh, rich people to do whatever they want uh, that is, I guess, focused of it's the MTV that's beyond me which I might have a little bit more experience of because I've been involved with it probably beyond you guys watching MTV. But it's like it's targeting a group of people that, I mean, apparently aren't seeing the, like, um, I don't know, Miley Cyrus controversy as much as all the old people yelling about it are because they're this well, huge is there Well, is there a Miley people. Cyrus controversy this year or is this... Because the that ongoing controversy. One of the things about this year that kind of did make me feel old is that everyone saw Miley Cyrus as insanity and was just like, oh, okay. Right. Saw her what? I mean, I think that, like, her versus Nicki Minaj, like, um, not racism, but feminism sort of face off was weird. And it was weird. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, right? It's weird because it shouldn't matter as much as it did because it's this huge she uh, just, peacocking music fest. Go ahead, David. My Cyrus is a strange choice of host. because I mean, it's uh, certainly understandable. Really? I worked at MTV myself at the time uh, of her um, per- performance with Robin Thicke. Actually, I worked one of these music video music awards, not at the show, but in the war room. In yeah. Times Square, uh, so to speak, which involved like literally oh, fucking doing nothing. So I was like, I run a movie website. Like, why am I here? Anyway, um, <laughs> the uh, so it's it's obvious why they would want to bring her back. You could see it all over the billboards across New York with the glitter and her face and her tongue. It's like, yes, we are recapturing this moment in the zeitgeist from a few years ago. She's just staggeringly unamusing, <laughs> like to watch. Really, she. I'm. I feel the opposite. Well, I just think that she's not particularly i mean i, I don't want to i don't feel comfortable saying that she's not bright i feel strongly that intelligence manifests in a number of different ways but she has no sense of comedy she has no grasp of comedy and i think that showed on stage very strongly um i think that she just had a really difficult time finding the rhythm in what her role in this was was that's in the show i think hosts her. often struggle with that so she's not like a cat skills comedian sometimes like she was like really going for shtick to a level that was kind of yeah. like super old-fashioned and i kind of agree with david that the timing was not great but Patch, did you think she's and, funny and her comments that sparked Nicki minaj's frustration were just like so boneheaded uh so clueless that it, it makes me think that she's not super intelligent in a broader sense as well to well, be clear, there yeah. were comments in an interview with the New York Times, not during the VMAs. Yes, correct. There were, and, and she, also like the whole album release and the, uh, I guess, publicity behind it. The whole flaming lips. She dropped a whole album at the end of the show, which felt weird. Like making like it was so weird today. Waking up and like knowing that there's going to be a whole bunch of stupid think pieces because I've lived through some VMAs in my time. But then like. Also, <laughs> not seeing a single list of winners until I like went looking for it because it's just so inconsequential at this point. 
Not well, that it's yeah, nobody cares about PMAs. Circle back to Miley. You're talking about feeling old, and I'm curious exactly what from this show or what about the culture that this show is trying to pinpoint is it makes you feel old. But for me, and I feel this way about a lot of the kind of just the, all of the mainstream pop stuff, especially the things that are catering more more of the marketing of VMAs or more of the experience watching it, you know, like hit Snapchat or go here and watch these YouTube stars talk to people backstage. Not, you know, on our last show, we talked about Taylor Swift. We talked about some of these big popbacks and how they could be really refreshing and fun. Um, actually, when I see Taylor Swift the person interacting with people in the VMAs, giving speeches and like performing, that stuff loses me much faster because she feels like such a robot, so manipulative. So, I mean, she's just commandeering youth culture in such a manipulative way. It's terrifying. Her music standalone, I'm really down with, but her as a presence terrifies me, and which is why I like Miley. Miley brings me back to like I get youth <laughs> culture because she subverts it. She is grotesque. She is a burlesque performer. She's not a comedian. She's just you, you talk about her doing shtick. She this is a burlesque show and she is just trying to be as gross as possible. I was in a conversation prepping for the VMAs at Esquire for some reason, um, talking to people about Miley Cyrus and they were like, what's with her infantile shtick, you know, making men look at her like a little girl and I'm like this is not Britney Spears wearing her schoolgirl outfit that is not Miley's thing she is not infantile she is not hypersexualized to make you think of her as a young girl and make men like froth at the mouth I, I imagine a lot of guys find her disgusting and they should because her whole burlesque thing is like being gross and it seems so awesome especially compared to a lot of the stuff I don't get that makes me feel old but her and Lady Gaga was doing like, that four years yeah, ago yeah exactly and her shtick is I think just Lady like, Gaga was doing I'm that so she's crazy. doing something extravagant she's more she's burlesque-esque but the she was about anti-sexy the lyrics of this so. terrific song you know which I have yet to unpack the layers of potential irony involved but as someone who's been to a Flaming Lips New Year's Eve concert and has seen how completely incompatible the idea of Wayne Coyne is to irony. I think you, that... Uh, have you come down from all those drugs yet? Yes. Uh, <laughs> it's been a few years that I finally have. Uh, <laughs> but he doesn't traffic in irony and I think that when she's... Like, it's hard for me when she's doing her shtick about, like, I smoke pot to not think that she means this like a sincere act of defiance as if like she is so irreverent so uh subversive and she isn't at all i think it's just as i don't think she's defiant she's just things. progressive to an ultimate degree she just wants to be naked because there's no there shouldn't be any limitations on body and control and she's totally progressive in terms of gender identification sexuality identification she's just like she's just the extreme embodiment of being free in uh especially at a place like mtv i mean for god's sake she slipped her nip and no one seems to give a shit she's just i think she's redefining really felt like she was doing that on purpose she is, I mean, she's doing it on purpose, but she's not. Rebel Wilson wore a T-shirt that said "fuck" on stage, and it took yeah, that was them like three weird. minutes to even realize. Did she really? Yeah, she wore a T-shirt that said like "fuck the police" or something, and it literally you could like someone was asleep at the wheel. The director was just like long shot, long shot, and then you could like see the moment where they realize this or or at least were instructed to make it look as if they just realized this and cut to side shots and framed her at the neck. Uh, but that yeah, was... it said it, it said fuck the stripper police. Okay, 
provocative. Wait, why do you feel old, Dave? Why do I feel old? Because everything that it presents as rebellious, I feel the system is already in, and I feel that more so than other crazy, I don't know, VMA moments. Like, when it, it feels like Kanye West, like, announcing that he's, like, running for president is, like, the most artful, like, thing that is happening in this, like, weird, I don't know, Improvathon. Uh, it it feels like the system's already in the music, and, and I guess it's always been that way. But it's like those Oscars where they tried to skew young, but then they also had like uh, weird problems with like you'd hear like hammers every once in a while, or they'd leave a mic on <laughs> where they wouldn't. It's like that. At least you know, I want if you're gonna be doing something on its face ridiculous, I don't want it to be super slick and smooth because then it feels like you know I'm getting an enema of advertising when I was like too tuning in to sort of at least be able to ironically make fun of something. This whole thing, I think that's uh, the element of advertising is interesting to me because um, it's really interesting, the dynamic between the platform of MTV and the performers and like who is using who. And ultimately they're both, you know, mutually beneficial, obviously. Uh, But it's so interesting to see a show where like there's no other award show I can think of. And I award shows like this in quotation marks where nobody gives so few shits about the awards. It's really just about a platform. It's a platform for Miley to announce a new album. It's a platform for Kanye to rant for 20 minutes and then announce his candidacy for presidency. (laughs) You know. But, um... I thought so. The commercialization part of it, I think, because I was paying a lot of attention to the pre-show, and that part of it felt so familiar to me. Like they trotted out those guys in Walk the Moon who were all wearing like coordinated glittery suits, and then there were these girls in something called Fifth Harmony, which is just like Destiny's Child. Now it's a it's a it's a girl group. There's five of them. Oh my god! They basically seem to be actually not even Destiny's Child. They sing the song "Worth It." Yep. What was the low rent version of Destiny's Child like back? Dream six. No, Dream Eve, Eve six. six was Eve six was not a girl band. Eve six, Eve six was, was like a dude with a guitar, pop, a rock band. I have absolutely uh, no idea the, what I'm talking the about. The band you're thinking of S Club Seven. Oh, S Club Seven. S Club Seven is a good one. Dreams. Anyway, I saw a bunch of that, and I was like, "Oh, this hasn't really changed at all." Like there were random YouTube stars who all basically look the same. Like, you know, to agree with Patches a little bit, like Miley Cyrus is doing something different, but she came through that box of stardom that has changed, but not that much. Like, not not that much about the uh, the process and the amount of advertising in this felt that different from when I was in middle school. I guess that's what makes me feel old because. Because if it was just a whole bunch of YouTube stars I'd never heard about and people were, like, excited about it, at least then I would know that, like, time had, like, moved on. But instead, it's, mm-hmm. like, all these things that I used to say, see as, like, subversive from, like, the nipple to Snapchat. Like, you know, we've been around at times where, like, you know, I remember tweeting along with, like, goddamn Bubble Boy and it was, like, there was the, the news and then there was the people on Twitter and they were two, like, distinct communities. Now everything's, like, slammed together, so it just feels weird that I've been alive for the entire process of the machine <laughs> slipping into like everything that I thought was countercultural you and now I, I wouldn't even know to look yeah. for the real music if I, I think was looking for it that's probably what old is is watching a lot of things go from being countercultural and subversive to completely mainstream and it just happens over and over again and maybe the more it happens the more We're like perplexed you feel it's it's not even the mainstream becoming subversive or subversive becoming mainstream it's like just a melding of two where it all it 
it pretends to be subversive and it's really just Main Street. It's just fuzzy nothingness. You know, at the at the VMAs, they introduced Pharrell's performance by comparing him to like Nina Simone and Bob Dylan and, and other protest singers. And I'm like, mm-hmm. yes, you're right. Pharrell is the next one in line after those guys. And the song like, no. that includes the line, last name is dumb. <laughs> <laughs> that is so forward thinking he's really in well and did you guys see the uh the macklemore performance that was at the very beginning oh, where it was I? like it had like a stage from like a high school musical production and like a, a freddie mercury impersonator it was so bonkers and such a mashup of eras that that kind of made me feel good that like that guy macklemore's older than me i think like you know there's still weird shit happening that involves the past that i'm not so far that i can keep up on as much as teenagers can and let's never forget that Macamore thinks that 9-11 was an inside job. Yeah, let's never forget. So does Marion Cotillard. That's what hashtag never forget means when you see it. <laughs> it means never <laughs> forget, forget Macamore. Macamore thinks that. Uh, Marion Cotillard, that is one of those things, you know, we're always talking about separating the art from the artist, but there has never been a Marion Cotillard movie where I've gone the entire thing without at some point thinking, doesn't she think 9-11 was an inside job? <laughs> Guys, really I just learned. Of, uh, two days and three nights. I just learned that Macklemore and I share a birthday. This is a share moment. a birthday. He was born exactly a year before I was. Oh my god! You share a birthday with Mac with the Macklemore with the Macklemore and Paula Abdul. We have so much in common. Oh my god! What a I share a concert. birthday with Rebecca Ferguson. So <laughs> wait, can I just make? Can I, I before we wrap this segment? I want to bring up something that made me feel old this weekend, and I want to know if you guys have heard of this. Have you heard of the phrase um, "Netflix and chill"? Yes. yes. Oh my god! I'm ready for it. To Netflix be- uh, and chill. Netflix and chill. I feel like all our young listeners are rolling their eyes and being like, "Obviously," and all our older listeners are already furious that we're talking about being too old, but are going to flip the wig. I mean, Netflix and chill is the code word for like go fuck in the basement while there's a movie playing in the background. Yes, oh, it they, doesn't. They have it doesn't actually right just mean Netflix and chill. No, no. no. It, it means Netflix and chill the way that it meant. Uh, the way that watch a movie meant right, just like let's go to when you invite and over get a movie. Yeah, exactly. I just think that's uh, awesome. Netflix yeah. and chill, and search for Netflix and chill on Twitter, and it is the funniest fucking shit. There's, I mean, a lot of people are looking for Netflix and chill nights, and then half of them are like, "Can't we just watch Netflix and chill?" Yeah, <laughs> like actually, Vine, watch Vine is the same yes. way. It's like there's half of them that are making fun of it, and half of them they're like, "Well, what happens if you really want Netflix and chill?" Well, friends, let me tell you, that is, that is what marriage is. You actually are just Netflixing and chilling. That's where it's all slipping away from us, by the way, on Vine. If you're not on Vine, and thank God my fiancé is, like, tapped into that and feeding me information like Netflix and chill because I would truly be lost if I didn't have a Vine do you, observer. Do you think that the uh, increasing Netflixes drive away from anything resembling good movies on their service, as you see from the movies they add or don't add every month, is going to steer kids more towards the in-finger quotes, Netflix and chill, and away from actually Netflix and chill, and drive up teen pregnancy. That's the true. I I legit watched good movies with my high school girlfriend in her basement, and I I was compelled by them. They're like binge watching old HBO shows. Like it's fine. Yeah, but they're getting good. I want to like so. screw my girlfriend to super high me. Or <laughs> try. You got to try it, man. You got to try it. <laughs> kush, kush, kush. <laughs> Take a little walk to the edge of town and go across the track. 
Very sadly, this Sunday, Wes Craven succumbed to his battle with brain cancer. But uh, I have recently been watching uh, Nightmare on Elm Street movies completely accidentally. Accidentally isn't the correct word, but I was... uh, (laughs) I joined this horror service named Shudder that's uh, curating streaming horror-only movies, the idea being the way that Epix has lost uh, a whole bunch of movies for Netflix because they didn't get into a deal. You could uh, now buy genre-specific bundles from people. But uh, one of these bundles uh, apparently included the Good Nightmare movies, uh, specifically the ones Wes Craven directed, which would be the first one, the third one, Dream Warriors, and Wes Craven's New Nightmare, which was his right before Scream sort of meta take on uh, Freddy Krueger. Um, and it, you know, I, occurred to me while I was watching it, and obviously um, looking back on his career, that he really did sort of like have key movies in the horror of the 70s with uh, Last House on the Left and The Hills Have Eyes, 80s with obviously coming up with Freddy Krueger, and 90s with the Scream movies. And it's there's not a lot of directors that uh, are allowed to be uh, reinventing themselves in the genre as much as he did. So that's probably for me the thing that I'm going to remember the most about Wes Craven, even when like you know some of the horror doesn't age as well, and we're not as scared of the same things as we were in the 70s and 80s. The the thing I'm going to remember about Wes Craven the most is that he did not direct Nightmare on Elm Street Three Dream Warriors. Oh, he Chuck wrote it. Chuck Russell did. Yes, he wrote it. My apology. <laughs> You idiot. Um, no, you're, you're spot on about Wes Craven. Um, you know, thinking about him last night and today and in this whole week, um, I, I just think about how much he didn't want to make horror movies. His interviews are constantly like, all I wanted to do was make Fellini films uh, in, in my own style. And, you know, he was pushed by Sean Cunningham, produced Friday the 13th, to take a stab at, at horror. And a stab. Telling- ah! Ah! <laughs> By Robert Rodriguez. No, um, he, you know, that's how he made Last House on the Left. And he just kind of funneled all this energy into this horrific movie, which isn't very, it's nothing like Nightmare on Elm Street. It's, it's about rape and it's about carnal instincts. It's about weird morals. And it's, it's a horrific, horrific movie. Um, and, and it just pushed him into a certain direction. And I think The Hills Have Eyes is another sadistic movie. It's, he, he has a very strange career because he didn't really make a lot of movies. And frankly, a lot of his movies in the 80s and early 90s are bad. And I, I, I say that as someone who really admires his work, that he's just taking these weird chances. You know, Serpent in the Rainbow, the 1988 movie, is it's like his apocalypse now. It's a weird voodoo movie, and it's not totally successful. And I'm just like, I'd rather this guy take chances. Maybe not Vampire in Brooklyn with Eddie Murphy chances, but... Oh. Um, did he direct Scream stuff, Four? What yes, he did, he did he direct all the Scream. He did, which is actually pretty good. That was his last movie. Yes. Yep. After my soul to take, which is horrible. I mean, it's oh, worth yeah. admitting that this guy had a flawed career, but a risky one. Or, or, as Dave mentioned, something that's totally. Uh, I actually getting tired of horror most of the time. That's what I like about the Scream movies as well. Scream two and three seem really fed up with the concept. Oh, All Scream right. Scream four is really fed up with it as well, and it's just <laughs> with young people in general being like, "Why do you keep getting me to do this for you?" It is really angry and great for that reason. 
Yeah, I am someone who can't really handle horror that well, but I think in reading the appreciations of Wes Craven, and I've seen, I think, all of the Scream movies at some point. Um, it reminds me that horror is such an interesting place to test out craft, that the genre allows you to do a lot of different things, a lot of interesting things, to put your stamp on it in a really specific way, and you really can become a master of horror in a way you can't become, like, a master of drama, because horror lends itself to that. And, you know, I think a lot of people learn a lot by starting in horror films and, you know... Wes Craven was able to make his impact there. Have you then, seen Nightmare on Elm Street all the way through? The original? I don't think so. I Just think I've seen, it. I know I've seen New Nightmare. I think I've seen bits of all of them. But yeah, Freddy Krueger was not, I, I, I knew who Freddy Krueger was, but like I was not. Freddy Krueger is scary. Freddy Krueger is really scary. He kills kids. They probably they kind of deserve it, though. You know what? The, the, <laughs> the scary thing about Freddy Krueger for me growing up was I couldn't see the movies, but there was this one asshole kid who had seen all of the movies, and he'd describe mm-hmm. the kills, but he would also throw in some ones that he just made up to try to see how gross he could be. And so I wouldn't be able to tell, like, the thing with the guy with his tendons getting ripped out of his arms. Like, I assumed that that was made up by this asshole kid in my, like, school for the longest time. Because I'm like, no way are they going to put that on screen. And then eventually when I got older and saw it, it was, it was amazing. Props to that kid for uh, being bold enough to rewrite Nightmare on Elm Street himself. Yeah. Well, he did it with some other movies, too, and video games as well. It was an asshole thing to do. But it really sort of allowed me to tap into the terror of Freddy Krueger while the campy Freddy Krueger was going on. So in that way, mm-hmm. I, came, I came to it right, right when I needed to, right the way I needed to. So this week, uh, Hannibal, the TV series that was on NBC, uh, wrapped up its third season with its potentially series finale. Um, because potentially. Is it still maybe coming back? Well, um, in all the post-wrap-up uh, interviews, Brian Fuller continues to say that the De Laurentiis <laughs> family that owns the rights to Hannibal Lecter is looking for funding for potentially a movie, and if American Gods does well on stars, then maybe he could, you know, like, come back and do something so like no. a series on stars. That's <laughs> <laughs> how so I'm taking that. As much as what Brian like- Fuller comes back to any project, which I think has only been Heroes, uh, there's, there's as much hope as there has ever been. What is more likely to come back, the Terminator franchise or Hannibal? The, the Terminator, Terminator franchise. Terminator franchise is coming back. Oh, God. Yeah, anyway, but we'll, anyway. we'll get back to Genesis, I'm sure, later. Um, I might have talked about this on the podcast before, but definitely now that it's wrapped up, I'm happy to say that this is my favorite adaptation, uh, specifically of Thomas Harris's novels, um, Red Dragon, Hannibal, and uh, Silence, no, not Silence of the Lambs, Hannibal Rising. 
which it took elements of all three novels, sort of blended them together and sort of made like a fan fiction interpretation of how this could have worked out as sort of a bromance between Hannibal Lecter, the serial killer, and Will Graham, the uh, FBI profiler. So, so the premise for the show was pretty much Silence of the Lambs, but what if Tumblr? Um... <laughs> It could have gotten to that point, and definitely there were sects of the fandom that might have treated it that way. But it was more, uh, for me, like Thomas Harris's prose is very purple and draws you into a world where serial killers are creating these heinous acts and they seek each other out um, just as much as they seek out, like, getting themselves caught, which is very much a narrative of uh, America in the 80s and 90s, um, especially as these movies were turned into, like, Silence of the Lambs and this very blown-out Anthony Hopkins Hannibal Lecter becomes popularized, which is a great performance, but not necessarily the one that's in the books. So this TV series sort of blends all the plot, but as an art film-like meditation on like the themes in the sense that it'll dip in and out of dream sequences or literally portraying people's fears as a, you know, shadow object or some sort a of deer. Yeah. A wind wind ago, man. As far as I got. Yeah. Yeah. There was one where a disembodied corpse sort of, uh, grew hooves and deer antlers and it was very disturbing. But uh, just the idea of using uh, the way Thomas Harris is allowed to use language to sort of bob and weave through this world and, you know, not only tell a mystery story, but also uh, populate these characters with sort of uh, rich but uh, gory and sad lives. Uh, the TV series was able to do it, and they weren't doing it necessarily specifically like maybe Game of Thrones would, where people would get mad if, you know, a certain character did or didn't die when they weren't supposed to. Uh, but instead, uh, we're managed to update the material. I feel like they, all the references to personal ads were taken out. A lot of the sexual violence was taken out of the series and instead replaced with like body gore, both to be on NBC and because Brian Fuller felt it was not important to who these characters were. But at the end of it, uh, he ended up doing... he. The Hannibal team ended up doing three seasons that sort of blended all these books and ended with a literal cliffhanger. And I realized as it ended that there's nothing that the series, or there's nothing that the bo- those books gave me that the series didn't give me. The series ends on a cliffhanger? Yeah. Wow. Like an actual cliff. Yeah. Like someone cliff. hanging from a cliff. That's awesome. Anyway. That's, uh-huh. <laughs> I, I got a, I watched the first 10 episodes of the first season earlier this summer. I uh, was really into it aesthetically. And found it so incoherent, like so. I was so annoyed by the pseudo psychology that clogged up every script. I was so uninterested in anything anyone said or did that I had to quit the show at the height, supposedly, of its dramatic art in the first season because I never wanted to spend another second with these people. Um, And it wasn't because I didn't. It wasn't because I didn't like like them. Like, oh, you didn't like the characters in the serial killer show. Uh, That wasn't the problem. I just thought that the cases were so dull because they would always have these nonsense answers for what happened. And Will Graham was yeah, it was no Graham is is like so off putting. I just couldn't. I could not with the show. Right, it was no SVU. 
Matt, Come on. Matt Zoller's <laughs> sites wrote an interesting piece on Vulture about how Hannibal, the TV show, was sort of like a novel where it creates its entire world. So it, it, Hannibal, the show, never takes place in our believable world, but it's not like they come out and say that. But like, there aren't a whole bunch of serial killers who are like putting a whole bunch of thought into like mushrooms or like human brains. So I'm going to, you know, style these corpses like a giant human brain. But True. that being said, if you structure the entire episode around a killer that eventually emerges from a pregnant horse at the end, because that's where he's been hiding, <laughs> like you could oh add more impact to that part of the story. <laughs> but the killers were never it. as interesting as the, uh, and I guess this is uh, either intentional or sort of uh, endemic to the genre, but they're never as interesting as the expressions of their madness. Like the one of the last episodes I saw involved somebody creating a... Uh, a tower, what's the word I'm looking for? Like a <laughs> totem pole of human bodies. Yeah. Um, well, I don't want to give up who that is, but that's a cool guest star too. Well, for the life of me, I couldn't tell you because who gives a shit? Like no one, they spent so much time talking about like what he's trying to tell them, what he means. I was like, you're just making this up. It's nothing. You're not saying anything real. <laughs> like it's just, and then I lost all interest completely. And I just wish they would talk more about the morbid shit that opened the episode. Well, I mean, there's a lot of police procedurals out there for you, David, and I'm sure. No, no, those are the worst. This is why I started watching Hannibal was to get a, you know, to have something that indulges in the darker side like that. But away from the police procedurals, but I thought this moved way too far into bullshit. Right. Well, I mean, it's possible um, that basically that season is the only one that doesn't uh, use, uh, I guess, a lot. It's basically that whole season's based off of a couple of pages of the book Red Dragon. Uh, so it gets better. It does get better because they're building and you realize like there aren't really any interesting killers until, you know, Hannibal's captured and the Red Dragon comes along and you sort of realize that, you know, it's been left that way for a purpose. But it's just ended up being, I don't know, it's a different type of adaptation that I've usually seen. And I, ever since, uh, I guess, Michael Crichton movies, so like Jurassic Park and Congo and Andromeda Strain, I remember reading books and then watching movies and trying to figure out, you know, like, this one's better here and this one's better there. And of course, the Harry Potter series is probably like the zenith of that because the movies are great, but the books are good, but for like completely different reasons. Um, oh, you think that, is that you saying the movies are better than the books? Um, the movies are good movies about a wizard, but the books are like so much more world building and whatnot uh, that, uh, I don't know when the plots get isolated and there's like, you look back and there's a whole book that's supposedly about romance. And then you realize you were supposed to feel like a teenager. It's completely different than the movie version, which just sort of falls flat. Cause it's all about whiny teenagers, but yes, don't even get me started on this argument. Well, I mean, this is the, this is <laughs> annotate this podcast go back to our debate about ranking the harry potter movies oh, i can't, yeah, I can't. I'm, I'm just I, I, how was the Susie sue song that was written just for the end of the show fitting <laughs> i'm not sure i'm ever gonna be like pull it out absent of the show but when it mm. kicked in you it definitely added the extra thing that um i guess without the song i wouldn't i would have felt like the finale 
the series finale couldn't have ended. I would have been like, oh, it's a travesty. There's not going to be a fourth season. But the way they orchestrated this at last episode to work, having seen everything that came before, I'd be completely fine if they never came back to these characters again. I feel like everything was told. And it, like, hmm. there's no Clarice Starling, but I'm okay living in a world where that didn't happen to Hannibal Lecter. At, at the beginning of this segment, David kind of joked that this... Uh, the, you know, Tumblr was the twist of Hannibal or something. But Dave, I do wonder, since you have a keen sense of kind of the meta narratives of the many things that you watch, it does seem that Hannibal took on a life outside of, I mean, Brian Fuller is very engaged with his audience on Twitter and that sort of thing uh, and Tumblr and, and seems to take cues. People, I see people chattering about, Hannibal and the end, it's like, wow, we got the payoff that we were dreaming, that, that we kind of constructed in our fantasy online world in this parallel fan fiction universe. And you yourself have described Hannibal as fan fiction, which is kind of a turnoff to my ears. But uh, I'm curious if you think that it was malleable to fan suggestion and if that improved it or didn't. Well, I mean, there's interesting debate going on now because Brian Fuller gave so many post-show interviews to a whole bunch of different outfit outlets and the one he gave to Alan Seppenwald, he actually explains this post-credit teaser tag in a different way. And then you could see as his day's going on and he's giving like an interview to Grantland, he'll suddenly be like, well, I hear that fans are interpreting it this way. But what I meant was... And so it's interesting that like he responds to it and then he's also doing his own thing. But I don't think that, uh, you know... He, the artist reading of it is going to be the definitive thing. That's what I like about it as a work is like, it doesn't destroy the Thomas Harris novels existing. Anthony Hopkins performance is always going to be there for better or for worse. But did it get to its end point through suggestion is what I'm saying. No, because it still did the plot of the books. Uh, basically. I mean, it might've gotten to its last scene through suggestion, but the whole idea is that the character of, Will Graham from Red Dragon solves crimes because he's super empathetic and that Hannibal Lecter is like a refined serial killer that like basically focuses on the rude and they spent three seasons bringing uh, sort of making the argument that true violence to somebody else is based out of that same empathy and so every sort of you know twist and turn the story takes is based around that so it's a slow burn in the sense that I you know can't I can't say that it's not, you know, fan fiction-y and it's uh, easy to binge because those two things are not true. But I think it got to the heart of what the original work was about through a visual medium the same way that the original work got to the same heart through text. So in that way, it's a worthy adaptation to me. Why aren't there many good television series based on novels? Am I forgetting something? Game of Thrones, obviously. Anne of Green Gables, obviously. Obviously. Um, obviously. What, uh, what, what um, else uh, am I forgetting? Oh, uh, Olive Kitteridge. Yeah, I mean, the Olive well, that's the one. that's more of a film, I'd say. I mean, Olive Kitteridge. <laughs> well, a matter of well, it's not I mean, enough. Yeah, I mean, it's like what six hours long. Sure. So, um. Yeah, I think, but uh, it's a mini series, David. A mini series, but novels should be supplying us with so much story, especially if it's a series like the Thomas Harris books, like the Hannibal Saga. Apparently, there are a lot. Says Google. Uh, Well, we'll be getting a lot. Strain intruders. Westworld is coming. Westworld is coming. Westworld is not a book. 
Was it wasn't Westworld. Westworld was a movie. I don't know if it was a book was before it that. Was a short, right, it wasn't a directorial debut, I think. CW's The Vampire Diaries. Uh, yeah, there is actually the CW Run. seems to be the best at because they have the hundred, which I think is based on mm-hmm. some books, and um, yeah, the the, the well, YA genre. Of them, right I'm sure. Don't you feel like the Why the Last Man adaptation that keeps never happening is going to just be a movie or a TV show? It seems like now that in the the cable renaissance, it's almost inevitable. And the budgets, like Game of Thrones, has proven you can spend a ton of money on these things and make it worth. Well, the Why the Last Man doesn't seem bigger than The Walking Dead to me. I guess The Walking Dead we would count as novel. It's funny because the walk when I think of a Why the Last Man TV show, I think of it catering exactly to the audience of The Walking Dead, obviously, uh, but with that lack of artistry, (laughs) like that sort of. Uh, mulch of culture. I don't know. I, well, you know, it would be I'm easy good. to do that because a lot of it doesn't take place. You know, it's not far fetched. You can yeah. just be in broken down buildings or this broken down building or well, this. I mean, that, that's a great example. The Walking Dead is a great example of an adaptation I absolutely hate as a fan of the first at least 112 issues of the comic. That show just like doesn't get it. It doesn't get the like. It's this. It's not about the gore. It's about like these stark characterizations of people slamming up against each other, and that that works in the comic book because you get it once a month in black and white, and it doesn't work on TV because it's like an emotional slog that you can't put your viewers through. But like, yeah, just the idea of like, it, I would like to think that with all pieces of art, that's at some point where the artist sits down. And it points it in the direction, either with the team or by themselves, and they try to get at like a central truth or something explained in emotion. And it's great to me when an adaptation finds the same thing through two different ways. It's weird for me when it pivots and becomes something else, and it's like an in-name only adaptation. Like what? Like I think The Walking Dead. Oh. Um, uh, but like, uh, th- think about other things. There's got to be other things. There's got to be like versions of the Wizard of Oz that are basically not the Wizard of Oz. There's got to be like Tin Man from Sci-Fi. Yeah, that wasn't a series, but uh... or I'm sure there's a uh, you know Romeo and Juliet adaptations or riffs that you know ride that line between being sure. an adaptation and being something completely original. But it's like yeah, I mean, and that's my that's often my favorite kind of adaptation. Like I've often said, I think probably said this in our Harry Potter thing last time that I want them to just take Harry Potter like Arthurian legend and just adapt the shit out of it and change it as much as they want every single time. I w- would watch that probably more eagerly than the movies themselves again because I like it when because I mean, like you were saying that Anthony Hopkins's Hannibal Lecter is never going to go away. Like you're not getting rid of the original when you're really playing with it for an adaptation, and really the only benefit of doing something so strict, you know, like the Hunger Games, just for the money. Right. I, or, yeah, yes. I mean, okay, no, th- that's not fair. Because, like, a true adaptation, there have been plenty of them that are lovely. You know, Country for Old Men is basically that book on screen, and it's great. Um, but there's a lot of things that I think could stand to be more liberally adapted. And if the t- future of television is book adaptations, I hope we get to see that more. Yeah, or then there's other things where it's, like, so much about the experience of reading is based around the thing of reading, and so you kind of don't want an adaptation. But then somebody comes along and does something like... You know, World War Z, which is not the book, but watching it, I'm like, I I didn't want to see you guys, this team of people attempt the book. So I'm glad you attempted this story. This is, you know, at least watchable. Yeah. And what's funny is, and kind of wrap this up, is that you are a big fan of Hannibal, Dave, and Brian Fuller is going to do the American God show, and you hate that book. So how are you reckoning with this? I mean, uh, hopefully uh, he could elevate it, because uh, the book... (laughs) 
American Gods has uh, a good core at the center of it, which is nice because I think Brian Fuller brought more out of Red Dragon that's actually in that book uh, or made me understand it better. At least I'm questioning whether it's those two things. American Gods is a really good idea that I feel is executed really poorly, so hopefully some execution could bring out the shine in that initial idea. Yeah, but who's going to play Shadow now that uh, Dwayne Johnson is on Ballers? <laughs> that's a that's a good that's a good question. I'm sure there are other you know large imposing uh, wrestlers that are ready to stride out of uh, a W whatever they are now. John Cena. I'm all is, about John Cena these days. Is the adaptation of The Stand still supposed to be what four movies? Yeah, that's not getting the TV. Uh, escape that you w- wish it could yeah it, four really yeah, boring movies probably four movies directed by the guy who made the fault in our stars well, kill me he, get me on the television well, what, aren't they like sequelizing that like aren't they going beyond the actual book i mean I absolutely no idea i don't know yeah, i guess I'm they were about, telling us at this point all stephen <laughs> king things i'm worried about i'm worried about that i'm worried about the <laughs> after movie three seasons of under says. the dome why would you be so worried jesus oh yeah there's one that's based on a novel under the dome i've never watched a minute of under could the not have dome. told you that it was still on television i thought it got canceled it just got canceled today it did yeah and they never they never got out from under that dome <laughs> oh, well man. it hasn't ended yet well, fair enough they have to go reshoot the scene when they get out from under the dome <laughs> like oh no wait so glad we got out of that hammer? dome guys yeah. <laughs> smash oh wait that's oh, it hey, okay the, the dome's down we're out of the dome That does it for this week's Fighting in the War Room. We will not have a review segment this week because the release schedule is dreadful. <laughs> Just for one more week, though. Well, actually, no, two more weeks, and then we'll be back. With, see uh, Z for Fulton. Zachariah. See Mistress yes, America. I saw Z for Zachariah over the weekend. It's so good. I had it's missed so it on I rented it on iTunes. It's... I kind of wish I'd seen it in theaters, actually. It stars uh, hang on. noted Rangers fan Margot Robbie. Which and gives it major points in David's book. <laughs> that's you liked it almost okay. as much as... I, I, I gave it like a three out of five star. Review. It's, it's pretty fine. Good. It's totally fine. I, no one will yeah. talk about this movie in a few months, oh, but oh, if it's oh. it has given a, where we are in the calendar, you could do so, sports, so, so much worse. cinematography. You could do uh, so much worse. It's actually... Yes. You can rent it on iTunes, so if... Yes, which is what I did. ...to uh, theaters, yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, we will not have a review segment, but we will be back next week with, uh, a, you know, pre-Toronto Film Festival, pre-fall season podcast. Uh, and then things really get fun. So in the meantime, tell the people who you are. I'm Matt Patches, and I'm identifying with younger generations by my vocal fry. And oh my God. Uh, I am the senior writer for Esquire.com, and we have a website, fightingintheworm.com, where you can share and uh, comment, and it's awesome. Hey, do do Jimmy Stewart with vocal fry. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Uh, I'm David Ehrlich. I'm the associate film editor of Time Out New York, the editor-at-large of Little White Lies magazine. You can find me on Twitter at David Ehrlich and at my new Squarespace website where you can find all of my writings and video on it all. Some of the stuff that I've done with my life at DavidEhrlichFilm.com. That's probably the one and only time I'm ever going to plug that. <laughs> We're uh, not even getting an advertising bump for Squarespace like every other no. podcast. <laughs> Damn it. Uh, and you can find all of us together on Facebook at Fighting in the War Room. 
I'm Dave Gonzalez. That's my first name, DA7E. That's also my Twitter handle where I will tweet out to all the many places that I write. I also do podcasts here at FightingInTheWarRoom.com. One about comic books and one about Game of Thrones. We released a off-season episode last week that you could Yeah, find. what the hell were you guys talking about in that? Oh, man, you don't want to know because you don't like spoilers. It's called Storm of Spoilers. I haven't listened yet, but I'm looking forward to it immensely. <laughs> yes, you could find it at our uh, main website, fightinginthewarroom.com slash GOT spoilers. And I'm Katie Rich. I am the Hollywood editor, Hollywood editor of VanityFair.com. You can find me there or on Twitter at K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H. Twitter is also where you can find all of us at F-I-T-W-R. You can answer this week's Night Your Own Question. We won't have a review segment to uh, talk about it, but answer it anyway. What was it? This is a good one to answer via Twitter. Who would you run with Kanye West on the Kanye West presidential ticket in 2020? We'll retweet answers. Don't oh, yes. you fret. Yeah. No, that sounds, yeah, good plan. Uh, thanks for listening, and we'll be back talking to you next week. <laughs>